how quickly could you learn to love someone? Let's get specific. Exactly how many questions would you need to ask until you felt close to a total stranger? What questions would you ask if you really wanted to get to know someone? What would you do if you were feeling distant in your marriage or estranged from your grown children and you wanted to reconnect? Is it possible there's a formula? In order to answer these questions, we need to go two places. We need to go to New York, and then we need to go to Egypt. I'm Scott Beyer, and this is the Love Better Podcast, where we explore the truths and the lies about love, and more importantly, how to hone love into a skill, something we can improve on every day as we go through this journey called life. So let's start out in New York. In April of 1997, Dr. Arthur Aaron of the University of New York at Stony Brook and his colleagues published an experiment called The Experimental Generation of Interpersonal Closeness, a Procedure and Some Preliminary Findings. This decidedly unromantic title was quickly replaced by the nickname The Love Experiment. Dr. Aaron had seen and participated in studies about how people interact when they are already close or how people interact when they are strangers. But how do people move from being strangers to being close? Well, it turns out it isn't that hard. Three dozen questions. Could it really be that easy? 36 questions, and all of a sudden you love someone? I'm fascinated by this experiment for several reasons. One reason is that Dr. Aaron's experiment reminds me of someone in the Bible that really loved well. But we'll get to him in a minute. The other reason is that we tend to mystify love and the feelings associated with it. We act, we act as if love is something that happens to us, not something we choose. And that includes the feelings associated with loving people. We assume that we have little or no control over how we actually feel. But the science that Dr. Aaron is doing and has consistently repeated and confirmed since 1997 says exactly the opposite. His team took complete strangers, partnered them up, and had them ask each other three sets of 12 questions. Each set became increasingly personal. Here are some sample questions from the experiment in increasing order of intimacy. Before making a telephone call, do you ever rehearse what you're going to say? Why? What would constitute a perfect day for you? When did you last sing to yourself? When did you last sing to someone else? What is your most treasured memory? If you knew that in one year, you would die suddenly. Would you change anything about the way you are now living? Why? How close and warm is your family? Do you feel your childhood was happier than most other people's? If you were going to become a close friend with your partner, please share what would be important for him or her to know. When did you last cry in front of another person? When did you last cry by yourself? If you were to die this evening, with no opportunity to communicate with anyone, what would you most regret not having told someone? Why haven't you told them yet? 
these kinds of questions, coupled with four minutes of uninterrupted eye contact, made a profound difference in how close people felt to one another. I'll put a link to all the questions and a couple of articles about the experiment in the show notes so you can check them all out if you'd like. So here's the question. Have we been thinking about being close to people wrong? I think so. Dr. Aaron's research says that closeness can be manufactured, and I think the Bible agrees with him too. Now let me prove it. It's time to go to ancient Egypt. It's time to look at Joseph. Joseph has 11 brothers, and to say that his family is dysfunctional is an understatement. His father, Jacob, has two wives, one of whom he loves more than the other, and the whole family knows it. Jacob plays favorites. His wives play favorites, and the children grow up knowing the pecking order instinctively. This is not a family where love flourishes. It is one where competition and rivalry are the dominant traits. Joseph's childhood family isn't a team. It's an arena. And Joseph has a target on his back, literally the day his father gives him a beautiful coat that makes him stand out from his other brothers. The end result? Joseph's older brothers throw him into a pit without water, sit around eating a meal, and chat about whether they will kill him or sell him. They sell him, and at 17, Joseph heads to Egypt as a slave. Joseph's story is a story of victimhood. For the next 13 years, every bad day, every problem, every missed opportunity, and even two years he spent in jail can be blamed on other people. The events that unfold in Joseph's life from slavery to false accusations to imprisonment and right down to the cupbearer forgetting Joseph's kindness, these injustices pile up one after the other in the life of Joseph. The thing that Joseph should be known for is bitterness. But he isn't. Joseph isn't bitter. And he isn't angry. And he isn't vengeful. And that blows my mind. What is it that Joseph is seeing that most of us would miss? Why isn't Joseph angry and tired and bitter and worn out by life? Why doesn't Joseph hate his brothers? Later in life, even they are shocked by this fact. When two decades later, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers when they show up in Egypt for a famine, they are terrified. They are dismayed. They knew what they deserved. But I want you to listen to how Joseph speaks to them instead. Let's read the record in Genesis 45, 1 through 11. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. 
For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. With the way that Joseph talks to them, you would think he had been close to them for years. He talks about wanting them to be comforted. He doesn't want them to be angry with themselves. He wants them to be near him so he can support them in the dark times that are to come. Joseph isn't angry, and Joseph isn't bitter. In fact, Joseph isn't even distant. Joseph wants to be close to them. What is Joseph seeing that we wouldn't? I think Joseph was performing Dr. Aaron's experiment before Dr. Aaron was. I think Joseph was open to being close to his brothers because Joseph really saw them. Take, for example, an earlier incident Joseph had when his brothers came to Egypt, one that happened before he revealed himself to them. The following is from Genesis 42, 21 through 23. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Do you know what Joseph did after hearing his brothers talk like that with one another? He turned away and he wept. Joseph is really listening and seeing his brothers for who they are now. Not the men they were 20 years ago that were angry and competitive. The men they had become because of the choices they had made and how those choices haunted them. 20 years later, and they are still talking about the brother they think they destroyed. They are still burdened by the guilt of sins they couldn't unwind. These men, they considered every evil thing that happened in their lives as connected to what they had done on that day when they sold him and lied to their father. There are some powerful lessons here from the brothers about the real cost of sin and the life-altering weight of its consequences. But for now, I want you to focus on what Joseph was doing. Joseph is asking questions, collecting information, and coming to understand his brothers for who they really are. And that knowledge? It leads to love. Joseph is asking them his own version of those 36 questions. He's watching and listening and learning about their pain, their journey, their guilt. And when he does that, love grows. Mark 12 verse 33 says that we should love God with all our heart and with all our understanding 
and with all our strength. To love God and to love people, well, it means we need to understand them. Take, for example, marriage. Peter says that husbands should live with their wives in an understanding way. Why? Well, because if you don't understand your wife, how can you properly meet her needs and honor her? How do you become closer to people? You do it by seeking to understand them. Joseph asked questions. He watched, and eventually he understood the bigger picture of who his brothers were. They were troubled boys, growing up in the same dysfunctional home, and they made bad choices. And those choices had tormented them ever since. It doesn't make it right, but it does make it easier to love them once you see that. Which brings the issue back to us. Are there people in your life that are hard to love? Or are there relationships that should be close, but you've drifted and the distance and now just feels so insurmountable? What if you tried again with your spouse, with your kids, with the church, with distant friends, even with an enemy? What if you invited them out for coffee and simply started asking questions and tried to understand? Amazing things can happen when love understands. Learn to love better. Learn to see people. If you've listened this far, hopefully we've done something to help make your life a little bit better. Would you mind returning the favor and helping us by subscribing to the podcast through your favorite platform? By sharing with others or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, you help us reach more people. Also, if you want more information about the work I'm doing at Eastland, visit us at eastlandchristians.org or my personal Bible site, biblegrad.com, where you can sign up for daily Bible devotionals called Bible Bites and receive them in your email each morning. Take online Bible classes or find videos that will help you study through the Bible throughout the year. And until next time, remember you are loved. So go, love better. <laughs>